Hello, listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. We've been inspired from the get-go to bring forward the thoughts, insights, and stories of artists, writers, scientists, fisher poets, and a host of worthy characters who know and love Alaska. I'm working with a slightly different podcast format where a guest reads and reflects upon some of their published work. My guest today is an award-winning author living with his wife not far from Glacier Bay, Alaska. An insight into what motivates his writing is this quote taped to the upper right-hand corner of his laptop. It reads, Anything else you're interested in is not going to happen if you can't breathe the air and drink the water. Don't sit this one out. Do something. You are by accident of fate alive at an absolutely critical moment in the history of the planet. That quote was from Carl Sagan. So clearly that perspective is fundamental to writer Kim Hecox. Kim is the author of several books, among them The Only Kayak and Jimmy Bluefeather, a book we so enjoyed that we read it aloud. Kim has also written some 18 opinion pieces for the well-respected publication The Guardian U.S., 10 in the last year. Today, we're pleased to offer two of those pieces, birds. Birds are remarkable and beautiful animals, and they're disappearing from our world. And another from The Guardian. What can we learn from Rachel Carson as we fight for our planet? I'll also read an excerpt from Kim's book, John Muir and the Ice That Started a Fire. With that, please enjoy the writing of Kim Hecox. I'm not necessarily a political animal, so my pieces for The Guardian are not hard political pieces like Rebecca Solnit writes or Robert Reich or other contributors to The Guardian. I like to focus on the climate crisis, biodiversity loss, and threats to U.S. public lands. So this piece on birds was one I worked on for a long time with the editors back and forth. And they ran it in January of 2022. When the poet Mary Oliver wrote Instructions for Living a Life, she reminded us, pay attention, be astounded, tell about it. This past autumn, wildlife officials announced that a bird, a male bar-tailed godwit, flew nonstop across the Pacific Ocean 8,100 miles from Alaska to Australia in just under 10 days. Fitted with a small solar-powered satellite tag, the godwit achieved a land-bird flight record. But of course, godwits have been doing this for centuries. Come next April-May, all things well, 
determined Godwitz will make the trip in reverse, bound for Alaska to nest and raise their young. They won't be alone. Northern wheat ears, songbirds less than six inches long, will arrive in Alaska from sub-Saharan Africa. Arctic terns will return from Antarctica, with each bird flying the equivalent of three trips to the moon and back in a single lifetime. Bar-headed geese will fly over the Himalayas at altitudes exceeding 20,000 feet. P.T. Barnum was wrong. The circus is not the greatest show on Earth. Nature is. How diminished our world would be without birds, those dinosaurs with feathers and songsmiths with wings. Not that I was born John James Audubon. I used to ignore birds and was poor for it. Once, in my teens, while out with my twenty-two rifle, I spotted a red-tailed hawk riding a July thermal. I aimed and fired and watched it drop from the sky. Stunned, I ran to it and found it thrashing in the dry summer grasses, dying. I walked away, fell to my knees, and threw up. Now, decades later, I love birds. How they bring me joy and give me wings. How they enlarge my world, slow me down, make me listen. In every hawk I see a velociraptor. In every thrush I hear exquisite music. In every swallow I witness an aerial dance as they snap insects in midair. In every epic migration I find myself redefining what's possible. And always the same question arises. Can we, the human race, in all our commerce and carbon burning, somehow save our winged cousins. In the past half century, North America has lost more than one-fourth of its birds. Nearly everywhere, they are in decline. Massive die-offs of flycatchers, swallows, bluebirds, sparrows, and warblers, described as thousands of birds falling out of the sky, have been recorded in recent years in New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, and Nebraska. Smoke from intense California fires forced tule geese to reroute their migration and take twice as long. Elsewhere, as birds lay their eggs earlier due to a warming climate, more chicks die from sudden inclement weather events. This is where we find ourselves, trapped in a diminished world of our own making. Today, only 30% of all birds are wild. The other 70% are mostly poultry chickens. In essence, Earth is now a coal mine, and every wild bird is a canary, what ecologists call a bioindicator in that mine. Their fate is ours. Soon after news broke of the flight of the Godwit, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced newly extinct species, including the ivory-billed woodpecker and Bachman's warbler. When the last individual of a race of living things breathes no more, the naturalist William Beebe once observed, another heaven and another earth must pass before such a one can be again. The author and climate crisis activist Kathleen Dean Moore writes, Unless the world acts to stop extinctions, I will write my last nature essay on a planet that is less than half as song-graced and life-drenched as the one where I began to write. Of all the species that have ever existed, 
more than 99% are now gone. Most having winked away during five major extinction events, the last caused by an asteroid that struck Earth some 66 million years ago. Today, given global habitat loss, especially deforestation and prairies turned into cropland, and widespread persistent toxins, we, modern humans, are the asteroid. The sixth mass extinction is here, with about 600 species of North American birds at risk from human-caused climate change. We must safeguard one of nature's greatest creations, wild birds, build a better world for them, and we'll build one for ourselves. We must defend a livable planet by electing politicians who have empathy and an ecological conscience. Vote blue. Act green. Restore native habitats and environmental health. Keep domestic cats indoors and affix silhouetted hawk decals to windows. In the U.S. alone, an estimated 3 to 4 billion birds die each year from cat predation and window strikes. Put a bird feeder out the window of a nursing home and watch the patients inside brighten. Birds bring happiness and improved health. A European study suggests that a backyard full of birds creates greater human satisfaction than a modest pay raise. Our survival and mental well-being are intricately tied to that of healthy lands, waters, and biodiversity. Nothing proves it better than wild birds. In August 2020, as the Trump administration sought to weaken the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act, a federal judge ruled in favor of the act and quoted Harper Lee's famous novel. It is not only a sin to kill a mockingbird, it is also a crime. I celebrated the ruling. Later, in 2021, when the Biden administration reinstated and strengthened the act, I took a walk along the ocean near my home, binoculars, not a gun, in hand, and felt a deep sense of gratitude, even hope, knowing that more than tens of thousands of people around the world would volunteer in the annual Christmas bird count, a century-old tradition to pay attention, be astounded, and share stories about birds. Godwits might come to mind, and Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Recently, biologists have announced deep in the forests of Louisiana that the ivory-billed woodpecker may still be alive. Uh, it needs to be verified. One researcher said he felt he saw one flash in front of his eyes for just a few split seconds before it disappeared behind some trees. So it's not a verified find yet, but they're working hard in Louisiana to find out if indeed it's true that the ivory-billed woodpecker is extinct. And this has happened repeatedly down in Louisiana with the bird is extinct. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, maybe it's not. So the drama continues. All last summer, the summer of 2021, the world was 
preparing for COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, the climate summit, the very important now or never climate summit. And I was looking for an opportunity to tell a story, write something unlike everything else that had been written. People are drawn to story more than statistics. We're all descended from a long line of storytellers. We're made of story and stardust. So I decided to write this piece on Rachel Carson. I've studied her for years and kept a long file on her. And I thought that she would make a strong piece of inspiration for what needs to be achieved in the world today. What the world can learn from Rachel Carson as we fight for our planet. Glasgow is our last chance, has become a climate crisis mantra. World leaders scheduled to meet at the United Nations COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow to discuss and act upon our global climate crisis face a huge task, as do those here in the United States, as they fine-tune the climate measures in the Biden administration's Build Back Better plan. All political measures up till now have been insufficient. The latest United Nations report on climate change issued a code red for humanity. And it's only going to get worse and probably irreversible. Larger fires, extended droughts, more intense storms, and more environmental refugees, destabilized regimes, and unlivable parts of our planet if our carbon-based economy continues unabated. The job is massive yet clear. Blueprint humanity's rapid path into a better, clean energy world by ending our addiction to fossil fuels. For inspiration, Winston Churchill might come to mind. How he rallied his people to resist Nazi Germany when Hitler seemed unstoppable. Or Nelson Mandela, who fought to end apartheid, spent 27 years in prison and wrote, It always seems impossible until it's done. Or Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote from a Birmingham jail, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. But I suggest Rachel Carson. 60 years ago, while sick with cancer and often in pain, she struggled to finish a book nobody else had the courage to write, a book she hoped would make an important difference. Knowing what I do, she wrote to a friend, there would be no future peace for me if I kept silent. I wish you could feel, as I do, that it is, in the deepest sense, a privilege as well as a duty to have the opportunity to speak out to many thousands of people on something so important. Already a best-selling author and professional scientist, Carson had closely monitored the controversial spraying of synthetic pesticides in southern states to eradicate fire ants and crop-killing insects. Immediately, songbirds perished by the thousands. Livestock, poultry, and dogs dropped dead. A similar thing happened on New York's Long Island. The more I learned, Carson wrote, the more appalled I became. She approached magazines about a feature article. None expressed interest. Reader's Digest planned to run an article in favor of pesticides. Carson then asked E.B. White, the popular author of Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web, if he would tackle the issue. He said no and encouraged Carson to write a book, which she did alone 
knowing full well she would incur the wrath of the major chemical companies that produced the new pesticides and of government officials who had approved of their large-scale use. After Hope Mifflin signed her to a book deal, Carson wrote to William Shawn, the editor of The New Yorker, to ask if he would excerpt her early chapters. She began her letter with a quote from Albert Schweitzer. Modern man no longer knows how to foresee or forestall. He will end by destroying the earth from which he and other living creatures draw their food. A diligent investigator, she worked on the book for years, all while fighting cancer. Excerpted and published in 1962, Silent Spring became an instant lightning rod. One reviewer called it propaganda written in white-hot anger. A lawyer for a large chemical company said Carson was a front for the Communist Party. The president of another chemical company, one that produced DDT, said Carson wrote, not as a scientist, but as a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature. Silent Spring also became an instant classic, selling more than 100,000 hardcover copies in its first three months and topping one million in two years. The Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas compared it to Uncle Tom's Cabin. The anthropologist Lauren Isley praised Carson and called her book a devastating, heavily documented, relentless attack upon human carelessness, greed, and irresponsibility. When reporters asked President Kennedy if the government would look more closely at approving synthetic pesticides, he responded, yes, and I know they already are. I think particularly, of course, since Miss Carson's book. In her soft voice and easy manner, Carson spoke on television and said that while many modern scientists believe man can and should steadily control nature, we must be careful because man is part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. And I think we're challenged as mankind never has been challenged before to prove our maturity and our mastery, not of nature, but of ourselves. Within 10 years of the publication of Silent Spring, the United States had an Earth Day and the Clean Air Act. Soon thereafter came the Clean Water Act and Endangered Species Act. Carson lived to see none of them. She died of cancer in 1964 at age 56. Leaders here at home, take note. The science is conclusive. It's time to pass a no-nonsense Build Back Better plan that will cut the emissions that feed climate disasters and take that accomplishment to Glasgow at the end of this month. It's time to praise peaceful citizen action from every fossil fuel divestment to every indigenous-led pipeline protest. It's time to embrace new green technology and offshore drilling and all harmful energy leases on U.S. public lands. Keep the oil, coal, and methane in the ground and work together to see our moment in history as Carson saw hers as a privilege and a duty. Shortly after this piece came out, the Rachel Carson Council ran it in their newsletter and got a large response. And I can only hope that people 
had it in their files at COP26 in Glasgow. I'll never know. By now, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow is behind us. Most of us would agree that it was a positive global step forward, but so much more needs to be reckoned with and done. I'd like to underscore Kim's sense of duty challenge while acknowledging many positive aspects of our time. He writes... The freedoms we enjoy today are rare in human history. In the past 10,000 years, many more people lived in poverty, tyranny, slavery, and feudalism than in freedom. We have great luck and should not squander it. To me, this brings to mind a quote or an image from Archimedes. Give me a place to stand and a fulcrum, and with the lever arm that in many ways we all have, I can move things, I can move worlds. So to broaden this out, or to deepen the context of this, I'd I'd like to read some from the prologue of Kim's book, John Muir and the Ice That Started a Fire. He writes, quote, the only thing that counts is that which can be counted, end quote, said Galileo 300 years before John Muir. Together with Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton, and others, Galileo gave us our modern scientific revolution, our age of reason, the triumph of the rational mind. And while he and his brilliant contemporaries carried us forward, they also crushed things in our path. They separated us from nature rather than making us participants in nature. They made us clever and powerful, but not wise. Muir was a revolutionary of another kind. He said there's much more to good science and right livelihood than connecting data and dissecting frogs. There's a deeper meaning than conventional analytical reason. Experiment is not enough. Good science also requires experience, a deep knowing and sense of wonder that comes from being out there, barefoot in the meadow, alone on the ice, naked in the storm. Quote, When we try to pick out anything by itself, end quote, Muir would write, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Galileo and Descartes had rational knowledge acquired from books and experimentation. Muir had intuitive wisdom acquired from the smallest flower and the largest glacier. He didn't merely learn about the natural world. He learned from it and in it. He went out there and slowed down and listened until his intuitive mind could dance with his rational mind. 
By doing so, he could, quote, feel the qualities of things around him. This enabled him to widen his circle of compassion. And with this wisdom and compassion, with this deep sense of the sacred, he would begin to write about the natural world, while the rest of America hypnotized itself on a thousand clever devices that consumed nature wholesale, Muir would honor nature and campaign for its defense. Further, you cannot stare into the eyes of a glacier. It's not a wolf, but you can stare into its face. It's tidewater terminus, a stunning, imposing ice wall rising from the sea, 200 feet high, deeply weathered, a threshold where the glacier ends and everything else begins, where blue seracs collapse into the ocean and primal thunder booms down rock-ribbed inlets. In rare cases, the glaciers might advance. Most often, though, in today's changing world, they retreat. They shrink back and die. Sometimes they hold steady, as a few do in Glacier Bay. John Muir found inspiration in these blue ice faces, as if the glaciers, like wise elders, had stories to tell and warnings to give. To this day, he continues to challenge us to see what he saw and do what he did, and more. He became our patron saint of flowers and birds, glaciers and bears, wilderness and wolves. By far the most vocal preservationist in a young nation, hell-bent on making money, Muir became our corrective lens, our better conscience. He spoke for the wild places and gave them credible value. He showed us an Alaska as a new world's new world, a place to reimagine what remained of America and our destiny in it. The glaciers Muir found in Alaska were larger and more dynamic and robust than anything he had ever seen or imagined. They were his abacus, his new ruler and measuring stick that made all remaining wild lands down south seem small and vulnerable. They were his metaphor, flowing through the land, yes, but also through his open heart and mind, and through time and events, and all things until he transcended the mentality of separateness and reductionism. Muir would then experience man and nature as one, the wholeness outside, continuous with a healthy inside. These great ice rivers, tumbling down mountains and into the sea, birthed icebergs and blended with a single essence with the snow, which in turn blended with what Muir called, quote, the invisible breath of the sky, end quote. They inspired him to preach his, quote, gospel of glaciers, end quote, an awareness and red-hot activism that would burn on and carry him through the rest of his days, even consuming him in his later years. By sheer force of their power and beauty, 
the glaciers of Alaska would help give birth to the modern American conservation movement. They were the ice that started a fire. Thank you, writer and storyteller Kim Hecox. Thank you, musician Christian Arthur. Show notes are on the web at alaskastoryproject.com. And thanks for listening. Be well. Be well.